Good afternoon and welcome to Exploring a Zero Trust Architect, Exploring Zero Trust Architecture, Getting Started and Avoiding Pitfalls, the Health System CIO Media Inc. production, sponsored by CyberMDX, a Force Scout company. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. I'm the moderator. My name is Anthony Guerra and I'm the editor-in-chief of Health System CIO. And we're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments at any time in the Q&A box and we'll take those later in the program. Just so you see how we're gonna spend our time today, we're gonna to go about 35, 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Brian Kayer, CISO with Tufts, Tufts Medicine, Omar Kajawa, CISO with Highmark Health, and Tamar Baker, VP of Global Healthcare with Scout Technologies. Okay, so we're going to jump right in and get into a lots of good stuff to talk about. Um, Brian, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Medicine is the parent company to a uh, Tufts Medical Center, academic med medical center within the Boston metro area, along with two community hospitals and a home health foundation. So I'm responsible for the cybersecurity program across the enterprise. Very good, thank you. Omar? Okay, I've, uh, I'm with Highmark Health, I've been there many years. Uh, we uh, own several hospitals as part of the Allegheny Health Network, and we also have the Blue Cross Blue Shield for several states, and then we've got a technology services organization, we've got a, a dental care business and a consulting business as, um, as well, and I've got uh, responsibility for protecting information and IT assets across that uh, enterprise. I also serve on the boards of High Trust and the uh, Fair Institute. And uh, one of the favorite things I get to do is I get to teach at uh, CMU's uh, CISO program. Very good, uh, Tamer. Hey, I'm Tamer. I'm the global VP for our healthcare vertical here at Forescout. I've been at Forescout for over eight years, and uh, before Forescout, I was actually a Forescout customer for a number of years, and then. Prior to that, actually, I was uh, in the military, but uh, but yeah, my, my roles are fully focused and dedicated to the healthcare vertical now. Very good. All right. Uh, let's get some a good baseline here for our discussion. What's your best definition for zero trust, Brian? So uh, I like to say zero trust is really the never trust, but always verify, right? So that's really the, the way I like to look at it is. How, how do you connect all multiple devices, multiple users, you making sure that there isn't, there's no inherent trust from those users. Let's always verify who they are, what they're accessing, how they access. Um, so that, that was how I would summarize it. Brian, when do you think uh, this change came about in approach from you know, what were we doing before? And then when did sort of the transition to a zero trust thinking take place? And when it did, were you, were you immediately like, this is right, this feels right? So I think it started coming down. It's been out there for a bit of time, but I think about more of adoption of it, right? How do we get there? How do we start thinking about interconnected devices? How do we really understand where our perimeter is, right? So as we started going more into the cloud and, and, and SaaS-based you know, um, solutions, we, we have to think about, it's not that traditional, I have an on-prem network, 
Everybody's here. We've locked, locked doors. Everybody comes in. I have a trust because you have bad badge access to the organization. You're coming in, so I could trust you on these computers. I'm maintaining those computers. That doesn't actually exist any longer, right? I've got remote users. We've got different technologies. Everybody's coming in. How do we interconnect? So we, we have to go back and say, change up the way we think about people accessing and the user themselves, right? How do I trust that user if their accounts were compromised? Are you know? So those are the pieces I think. So that's really where this evolution, I think, and it came more um, important as the pandemic came up and saying, "Well, now we got this remote user workforce. How do I create it? Do I just open up a VPN to that person? Well, I could open up a VPN." Maybe I could validate the user, but I can't validate the always validate the device. So how do I know the device is secure? Do I want to connect it to my network? So those are all things I think, you know, the pandemic had really, really changed the, the model for how we think about zero trust. Omar, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, um, I agree with, with what Brian said. I think he laid a really nice foundation and a, and a fairly comprehensive definition for, for zero trust. And with the benefit of going second, um, I've had a few more, you know, a little bit more in building on what Brian said. You know, I, I'd say a lot of what Brian talked about it and the reasons for it is because uh, two big drivers. One is an increasing need to uh, provide access and to interact with uh, with organizations and people and users where the trust is not clear and increasingly where there is more lack of trust and increasingly systems are not just connected to a particular level of trust entity. So it used to be that you could say this system is going to be only accessed by trusted users. This system is only going to be accessed by untrusted users. And those uh, simpler monolithic architectures of the past uh, we longed for because they were really, really easy to protect, but they no longer are, they no longer exist. They, they're really a work of fiction these days. And so we've got to have an approach that allows us to work in this very distributed, in this non-monolithic trust environment. And the way to do that starts in many ways with assuming compromise, assuming lack of trust, and still being able to securely enable the uh, enable the process to uh, to work. Now, Omar, as as uh, Brian was talking about the transition, uh, sort of from one sort of phase to the next in in healthcare with security, it made me think that there's probably always going to be a lag between the change in 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 work style that creates security exposures, and then a solution to where organizations then move to address that. Okay, we're in a new world now. Well, for a certain period of time, even as short as it may have been, we were exposed as we changed to the new world before we realized it. Does that make sense? What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think, you know, we, we try to be uh, able to tell the future as best we can. And we work on preparing our respective organizations to be prepared for the changing changing future. And sometimes we get to be a little ahead and sometimes our crystal balls fail us and we find ourselves in situations where we end up having to respond and react. The reality is some of the things that we're responding to and reacting to are happening all around us and 
they're just part of the generic threat landscape of the world that we live in as technology evolves and as adoption of that technology continues to grow and pervade across various facets of life. But then there's some things that are specific to the respective organizations that we're in and their appetite for Mm. growth and transformation and entering new markets and trying to keep both of those lenses on and trying to figure out how do we skate to where the puck is going to be a year from now, two years from now? Uh, That's something that we're continuously trying to work on and be really, really good at. And sometimes we're right where the puck is going to be. And sometimes we misestimate and we end up somewhere else. And so we do end up sometimes playing a little bit of uh, a little bit of catch up. Tamar, is, is that how you see it? I mean, that's that's one of your jobs as a provider is to help your clients be where they need to be, to help them read the tea leaves and understand how business is changing and how it's going to change and position themselves to be able to have to be secure in that environment. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it, for sure. That That's something that's never easy because we none of us have a crystal ball, obviously. None of us could have predicted what was going to happen with the pandemic as a great example, which accelerated a lot of different projects. Um, but we do our best. And, and uh, you know, I have conversations with, with both customers and prospects all the hundreds a year. And I try to piece together not only what the pains that they're going through to understand, well, what's the future going to look like for them? But I also, on the other side of it is putting on the attacker's hat, going through what's going on in the, in the world out there, uh, you know, working in a in collaboration with all the threat research uh, folks that both are at our company as well as many others out there to just understand the direction things are going. I think part of the difficulty with trying to predict where that puck is going to go is oftentimes when we bring up, hey, this is probably what's emerging. This is something that that I'm seeing as, as a as a coming trend in the next three to five years. People, uh, it's painful to try and get to that now because we're trying to allocate our time and dollars and everything to still solve the problems we're dealing with today before we can even try and future-proof our, ourselves. So that's that's where some of that challenge is when you're trying to think ahead, unfortunately, is just time and money come into play when you're trying to get ahead of it. Very good points. All right, let's go to the next question. Uh, Omar, we're going to start with you. Describe the attack surface health systems have today, and I think we touched on this as opposed to a few years ago. Is working towards a zero-trust model the best way to mitigate the risks posed by today's attack surface? Is this the way to go, or are there choices? Is it, oh, we could do A, we could do B, or is it pretty much zero-trust is is kind of a no-brainer to work towards, towards that? Yeah, I think the, the old approaches where, you know, you had specific choke points, anything coming into your systems was coming in through one internet perimeter, any access going out to the internet was going there. All of your users were behind that perimeter. We would uh, use things like um, hairpins and VPNs and tunneling and all sorts of things to, to enable that. Now, our workforces are distributed, even pre-COVID that was happening globally. Now it's happening locally. We expect our systems to work way faster. More and more of what we are doing is happening to the web. Five years ago, most of the applications we relied upon were not networked applications. We could use them on the endpoint, but these days, whether they're productivity applications, they're SaaS applications and so on, almost everything that we do is connected in nature. And uh, the the ability to get to those systems really, really fast and get those services out the web fast is really important. So 
bringing big things back to home base and a centralized data center and a centralized perimeter doesn't make sense. And even if you were to do that, the amount of uh, connections and ports that you're opening, you end up having a little bit of the uh, Swiss cheese effect. So it renders that not nearly as, um, as helpful. Taking a zero trust approach and going beyond level three and level four and just looking at IP addresses and ports really, really is is um, is imperative given that the world the world that we live in today. And so, you know, Anthony, when I think of the attack surface, five or ten years ago, the attack surface was a few specific buildings where the organization was located, and maybe a data center that was within those buildings or um, or close by, and maybe a DR facility. That was it. Now we're distributed. Now more organizations have people in more places than they did pre-pandemic, and certainly post-pandemic. Um, we went from a handful of work locations to hundreds, if not thousands of work locations because everyone's home now becomes an office for the, uh, for the, for the organization. We've also started to put way more in the cloud than, than we ever had before. And in the past, you could do things like we're going to keep our crown jewels close and within our four walls, and maybe we'll use cloud for dev environments, and maybe we use cloud for, for, for testing and for DR. That's no longer the case. Cloud isn't just a secondary environment. Increasingly, it's becoming a primary environment for workloads. Um, the last thing I'd mention is IoT. And you have lots and lots of devices that now need lots of connectivity. And so the amount of connections and the amount of nodes that we have on the network is really large. And poking more holes in the firewall is, um, is just not going to be as, uh, as effective a uh, strategy as perhaps it was five years ago. Very good. Um, Tamar. Yeah, so just to build on this, um, one of the things that I've noticed is we're making a, we've made a big splash in attention and a lot of focus has shift towards users and, the, and your user base that have gone remote. But we can't forget that we have two thirds of our network still on-prem, all the medical devices, all the systems that are still in the hospital systems, right? All these things that are still very hyper-connected into the network. And we need to remember that that is part of your attack surface that's increasing daily. And that was your towards the end of your last point there, Omar, which is the IoT devices, the digital transformation has caused all these things to come online. And these things are connecting not only in the internal land, but also into the internet as well. So the it's not always about users and applications. It's quite often now these medical systems are all hyper-connected. These medical devices are all really interconnected right across your network that we have to pay attention to when we talk about zero trust as well. Yeah, Temer, you're right. Like it used to be, you know, you had devices on one network and devices on another network and you just needed a fat pipe between them. Now you've got an explosion of clouds and you've got an explosion of endpoints, including uh, IoT devices and Internet of Medical Thing devices. And it's just exploded and you no longer have one thick pipe. You've got so much connectivity between them that, uh, you know, the the old approach of, of the choke point doesn't doesn't work and it needs to be one that works um works much better given that the amount of connectivity and connections has just uh absolutely exploded brian i'll add to that too so i think when we talk about you know the tax service and healthcare systems how, how they change i think a lot of it too is during 
a lot of the, the ability to build out remote, do this stuff. It was kind of focused on, well, what did we do before? How did we do this and just continue on? So nobody really had an opportunity to say, what is, what's the strategy? What is it? Because we had to, we had to react, right? So are, is there some exposure? Yes. I think that we have to think about it. When I look at it from that, from that healthcare system perspective, I also go look at it from the, the third party support. How do they traditionally, yeah, well, let's just continue to keep, that active VPN session. And that was fine if I knew they were coming in from a particular location on Trusted. Now they go, well, we have people remote and they're going to come in and they're going to do this. I want to, you know, I, I want to connect how I always did because I'm going to want to disrupt the business, but that's not going to be effective. So we start needing to think about, you know, I think it really pushes that we need to work towards a zero trust model, change that now that we know a little bit about, you know, but I guess, you know, we didn't know, we didn't have that crystal ball that we've noted before early on. Now we're seeing, now we have a little bit of that hindsight, you know, information to share. And so what, what do we need now to do as a best practice? And I think that zero trust is that way, right? Looking at that, building out from, you know, and, and really going to what are those, what do they need access to identifying those users and validating that they are trusted in narrowing down their focus. So, so kind of like um, think of it to something I always look at as like kind of privilege access management on steroids, but not just privilege, but all access, right? You know, really breaking that down and saying, how do I do that? Because from an attack surface perspective, when you think about it is, you know, ransomware is impactful to our organization. How does that get in? How do they do it? How do they, how do, how do we stop that? How do I know that this person should have the specific access they need and they're not navigating across? So we need to, we need to stop those, you know, those are the threats that are really hitting us hard as an industry. And so those are the things I think. So, you know, working towards it uh, is what we need to all start putting in in a plan and getting everybody on board and not just, you know, Hey, this is don't do the old way where it's just easy to just keep doing what we've been doing because that doesn't, that's not effective in a fit, you know, in the, in our new threat landscape. All right, Brian, we're going to stick with you on this one. Let you go first. How does one get started working towards a zero trust model? What are some best practices and what are some of the greatest challenges or pitfalls to avoid Discuss the importance of mapping data flows as a precursor to determining a zero trust, a zero trust policy or design approach. And if you want to look, talk a little bit about NIST's zero yep. trust model. And so, how do we? I think starting is looking at the areas of your highest risk, and how do you start to bring those and put a plan around it? So, for for us as an organization, we started going into uh, a planned migration to the cloud. So the first thing is, is well, it was actually in this piece was all net news. So we built a zero trust process around how do we access the cloud and managing that. So it wasn't something that was, hey, let's just lift and shift. It was actually a net news. So it was an opportunity for us. So I think those are the pieces. But I think that the challenge is understanding what is the right solution to meet all those needs and does it fit? Because when somebody goes back and says, well, hey, I got the zero trust. I'm accessing a process. But I, hey, I got this script on my local machine. I want to run. How do I copy it up there? I don't have that. I don't have that access. How do I get it there? So now you have to think about alternative ways of, you know, solutioning that and doing that. And that, you know, um, elongates the process. And I think that's where sometimes those are things that people just want to go back and like rip it out and go back to the traditional. Like, let's just go back to the VPN access, right? You know, or let's just, you know, remove that. And I think those are some of the things that like the pitfalls. Also, 
I, from an industry, and I, I've been on a previous conversation with the other uh, parties as well, when I think even the name, zero trust, right? We as technologists, I think, understand what it is, right? But I don't know if it's a good term on a business level, right? Because of course, that's the hard thing is, hey, hey, I'm going to put a zero trust solution in place. Everybody assumes like, what do you mean zero trust? How come we don't trust anyone, <laughs> right? This, this So it's funny, I, I've talked about like, you know, maybe we should come up with a better name from an industry standard than calling it zero <laughs> trust. Because I think that's, to be honest, that's a part of a thing to get out there and, and explain or if I'm going to a board and saying, yes, here's our new zero trust. It, it, you know, implicitly like, well, hey, we have doctors here. Aren't they trusted? They, they have to go through this whole process. They are trusted. What do you mean you don't trust this? So I think that's, you know, so I think just kind of just stepping it back, kind of the, you know, challenges is really somewhat the name, right? What What is it? And I think as somebody said, always authenticated, always validated user, right? but but it's not, doesn't have this catchy phrase of zero trust. So, um, and again, that's just, my piece is when I think similarly, when you look at kind of the NIST standards, it's really going through is knowing your data sources, knowing your services, you know, communication plans, um, you know, really putting all that up front, knowing where you want to start that process and where is your biggest risks, I think is the, is what I would say is a, is a starting point. It's such a Find great, us. it's such a great point because um, we, we, we talk a lot about balance, powering the business, not saying no, and balancing usability with security and finding a right. balance. Well, zero trust sounds like it's going to be my way. I'm not allowing anything in here that makes me feel uncomfortable. It sounds right. like security overreaching like it used to maybe in the old days, which is why it was very unpopular. Right. No, I, and I agree. And I think that's some of that method is hot message. How do, you, how do we translate this to saying it's going to be better? And also, but I think everybody's concerned is, what is my user experience? And I don't think because as a as an industry, we haven't fully adopted a, a zero trust. So some people haven't seen what it looks like, or they've seen it implemented, but maybe not in a good way. And so they always bring the bad points and they go, oh, uh, that's not going to work for me. That's not going to be effective. I need to have this. I need, it, you know, I need to have this ability. We need to have this process. I can't, you know, wait on, a, on a, an approval piece for this. So I think that's so getting that information up front, knowing what those what you're going to see from the business clinical side pitfalls of what they might feel that it's going to impact impede their ability to deliver you know patient care, understanding those up front and getting all that you know bringing that early on in the approach. If not, I think that's where you're going to have a challenge with the adoption. Omar. Fine. I I love what you said about uh, you know zero trust not being a very friendly name. I, I think the you know it's a it's a very descriptive name from a security perspective. I feel like it's uh, it, it's called exactly what uh, what the intent is intention is, and so I've um, I, I've really hesitated ever bringing up the term zero trust outside of the security function, in particular because. Uh, one of the four core behaviors for us at Highmark is a trust working together. <laughs> so this feels directly in conflict with that. So I can't yes. use that term. Now I can leverage the principles and, and talk about it. So what you said is, is right on. Uh, we're probably not doing ourselves any favors if we need adoption and support from the business and IT by calling it zero trust. 
But where I struggle is from a security perspective, yeah, that is that is accurate, but we probably don't want to go to our colleagues and say, we are not going to trust you. That is our <laughs> new approach going mm-hmm. forward. They're like, right. The, um, you know, the, the other thing that, uh, that we did, and, and this is, I think, Brian, what, what we would, you were alluding to is uh, when, when we marked on the zero trust uh, journey, we, uh, we developed a set of criteria because as we were coming up with ideas and we're looking at things, we're like, we could do this for medical devices and we could do this for our data centers and we could do this for end users and we could do this in the DMZ and we could do this for mobile. And I mean, there's no shortage of ideas where we can apply that uh, zero trust approach, that zero trust uh, mindset, and there's no shortage of controls either. And so in order to make sure we were being purposeful and deliberate, we actually partnered with the business and we said, these are the things that we think should determine where we, how we should prioritize where to deploy uh, different, uh, different approaches to promote zero trust. And once we got their buy-in, then we applied that criteria to the different use cases and we plotted it on a heat map to say, here's the level of risk reduction we'll get from deploying this particular zero trust friendly control. And here's the level of effort to do so. And that sort of gave us a roadmap for how to get to zero trust. Um, you know, the, the other learning that we've had along the way is that uh, zero trust is a destination that will likely be elusive. I don't think anyone's actually going to get to zero trust. And there's the, you know, Vince Lombardi um, uh, quote that says, uh, perfection is unattainable, but in our pursuit of it, we might just get to excellence or something like that. But that's the way I look at it here is we may not to get to zero trust, but we'll definitely end up with a whole lot more security if we try to get to zero trust. And so, um, you know, that would be another thing I, I would have wanted to say to myself a couple years ago when we started the journey is it's okay if you don't get to zero trust, if you're getting closer and closer to it by deploying some of these controls and these strategies and updating configurations, you should do that. And you know, a good example of this, and, and this Anthony goes to the question around mapping data flows, mm-hmm. where you know, I'd hear from the team, these applications and systems and users have been in place for a long time. No one really has them documented. We don't really understand what the flows are like. You can't just implement zero trust because that'll break a lot of things. And so that would be a cause for depression and we'd be sad and we'd say we would like to move forward, but you're giving us good reasons not to. So we could have just, you know, put our heads down and walked away and said, I guess we're not going to be doing this. Instead, what we ended up doing is we said, well, we know what ports are really risky. And um, let's just start with those. If we can't block every port that isn't going to be used let's at least start with the top 10, 15, 20, 25 risky ports that we actually have a pretty good idea. There's no reason that SMB should be used here. There's no reason FTP should be used here. For these systems, we know they don't even need um, email or SMTP or whatever it is. Let's at least block those ports. So do we are we moving it forward? Yes. Is it perfect? Definitely not. But what we find is sometimes that first 10, 15, 20% level of effort that no one argues with and everyone agrees with, that actually leads to 70, 80% of the risk reduction. So we'll happily take the 80% risk reduction and be on our way to zero trust versus arguing about the very last 10, 20% that is really, really hard to get to alignment with the, uh, with the business and IT on. Excellent. Tamar, there's so much there to jump in on. I'm just going to leave it to you. 
Yeah, so I've had the the privilege of having zero trust discussions with countless number of organizations now. And uh, I'll tell you, Omar's experience is is very much the exception from what I've seen out there. Most people don't have this fully planned and mapped out the way you described. So some of the biggest pitfalls I've seen is as people are, are even trying to come up with their zero trust strategies, um, there's two things that, that are the biggest two things that I see up front is one, they forget that they have to incorporate for their zero trust strategy, everything that has to do with the entire digital terrain. So it can't just be, I'm going to do a zero trust strategy for my cloud or for my users or for my whatever. Like they, they're forgetting that they need to think about their strategy before they implement anything for all of the above, the users, the workspaces and the data center and cloud the medical devices, the IoT devices, the things that are all hyper-connected between it all, all that needs to be come into your design up front. That's the first big pitfall that I've, that I've come across is people are kind of hyper-focused on users. Um, the second big pitfall that I've seen is, and this goes to the definition that NIST has outlined in the 800-207 that they put out, um, they've outlined seven steps, which are very clear, very, very good ways to try and get to that zero trust. And when you look at those seven steps, the vast majority of the people that you talk to are starting on step five. They're trying to understand, well, what vendors do I want to buy? What product solutions? What, what type of enforcement do I want to Im- implement, right? Do I want to implement a SASE enforcement or this enforcement or microseg or whatever it may be? But that's step five. People are forgetting steps one mm-hmm. through four, which is understanding what's even on the network, how they're all currently communicating, what it, because everything is crossing several different boundaries, you have to really know your digital terrain, what your landscape looks like, so that then you can pick and say, well, the way these things all communicate, I know I need this kind of enforcement point here. I need this kind of enforcement point there. I need that kind of enforcement point here, similar to what Omar has outlined. Um, but again, I think you're more of the exception, Omar. So thank you for sharing with everybody else. But that is a pitfall that I'm finding is people are starting on that step five. They're trying to understand which enforcement points they want to buy without even understanding steps one through four of the entire digital terrain first uh, to really get to pinpoint, well, this is how things are communicating. So now I know how I need to, to limit those access based off of that. So Tamara, do you think that, can you see, or have you seen people actually break things, so to speak, by jumping to step five or by, yeah, by, by doing things before they understand what's flowing where? Yeah, that, that's the depression that Omar talked about. <laughs> you, you get to, like, if I've seen organizations that are at various levels of their journey. Some of them haven't started. They're still in planning. Others have progressed, you know, a couple years in. Um, and others that I've talked to many times, actually, where it's their third go around, right? They've, they've tried to implement zero trust and they break stuff because they haven't done the steps one, two, four first. Or... You know, they the first time some kind of disruption happens, the project halts and that's it. And like people are like, you know what? This is too painful. Let's just go back to I think Brian said it. Let's go back to our old ways where it was working pretty well before. Let's just, you know, pad that up a little bit only. So so for sure, if you're skipping those steps one, two, four and that initial planning, and you go straight to just picking out a vendor and enforcement point, you're gonna you're gonna either break things or you're gonna have to revisit and replan and redo zero trust over and over and over again for all the different parts of your network. Brian, um, let me let me ask you real quick. Uh, Omar mentioned sort of using leveraging governance um, in order to have the business decide where they wanted to start. You're going to, you say, we're going to go on a zero trust journey. 
But where do you want us to start first? If I got that right, Omar, you brought in the business to help make those decisions. Um, is that something you've looked at? Not as of yet, but I think it's a good plan. I think that's a strategy explaining to the business and, and articulating in a good way what that journey looks like and how do we get there, right? So, um, you know, you could start, start talking and saying, well, hey, let's let's talk about this. You know, we know we have risk with even end users. So let's, let's do a URL whitelisting process. Well, you know, how do we know what's, you know, there and how do we, you know, dissect? So even if that piece of things becomes challenging because I go, what's our turnaround time? What's our expectation? What happens when it doesn't work? You know, who who's the escalation point? So I, I, I believe we should bring it to them to help them formulate, you know, continue to formulate the right plan. But I think we need as, as a process of to also give them a little bit of a, a, you know, what does a solution look like? Because I think it's hard to, for them to formalize and not know and provide good uh, direction here. Yes. Let's go with this approach. If they don't really understand how it's going to work. So I think that that's in my opinion has been a challenge, right? Cause I've, I actually have tried to bring this up. Um, but again, I think maybe that cause the concept, Hey, we're going to talk about zero trust, how do we do this? And until under, people understand how it's going to impact them, I think that's a hard thing for them to, to prioritize for us. So, but that just has been my experience. But Omar, if, you know, if it sounds like you might have had some of that, I'd love to hear what you know if you know what you've may have you know been able to accomplish from trying to drive that. I don't know if your heat map helped, um, but yeah, you know, Brian, one of the things that. Uh that we try to do is we try to set clear boundaries between the role of the business and the role of security. So the business gets to decide the outcomes that are important and they get to prioritize them because ultimately the security team exists to protect the business. Right. Uh, however, how we do it, the business doesn't get to decide. How we get to meet those outcomes is on us. So if I were to use a restaurant analogy, the business gets to decide what they order off of the menu, but the business isn't allowed in the kitchen to help put the meal together. And so the business gets to decide the criteria for what would make systems um, higher risk and where zero trust would be of greater benefit. So we uh, put criteria together that says, you know, FDA has a classification of devices. So how important and how much weight should that have in terms of the assets being protected? Uh, there's some devices that are in some departments that you know you may think are more important than others. Do we look at the number of patients that have access to it? Do we look at the amount of data on there? Do we see if it has uh, a kinetic impact or if it's just informational? And so we identified a lot of those criteria and what we went to the business with is we said, can you assign a weight to each of these criteria? And so this is your definition of what you think is of value, then let us take that and make go back into the kitchen and say, you know what, if we were going to add improve authentication here, we're going to improve roles here, we're going to implement micro segmentation here, we're going to implement more monitoring here, we were going to implement a uh, another blocking control, whatever that is, we then tie that back to that criteria and we score it. And so when the business says, what are you doing? We don't say we're doing micro segmentation and authentication and so on. 
We just say, here's the number of use cases we've implemented. And we don't talk about what the use case is. We talk about how it impacts and we tell the story in terms of the uh, criteria that the business agreed to. So now we're delivering the message in business language and uh, we're keeping the business out of, uh, out of the kitchen. Good. Very good stuff. Um, Omar, this can disrupt uh, the business operations or is there necessarily things that the business has to do differently? Um, people have to interact differently um, than they were before. People are so intolerant of any type of change, the slightest type of change, and especially disruption. So as, as we were talking with Tamara before, if actually you break something, forget it. I mean, you're just going to be in the doghouse, so to speak. But even change, even you used to click here, now you have to click here. I mean, people are just phenomenally intolerant of that. So when you're going down the zero trust road, um, talk about some of the changes that have to be made on, you know, to user behavior and how you navigate that. Yeah, so, so I'd say, you know, in the interaction with the business and when we're telling the business about things that we're going to do that are going to impact their interactions with technologies and systems and how they go about doing their jobs. And especially in the case of the uh, provider side where we're delivering healthcare, um, my direction to the team is 90% of what you talk about is the why. You're not allowed to spend more than 10% of your time talking about the how or the why. Um, that's, I think, where organizations go, go wrong and we slip up all the time. We actually just had a meeting earlier this week with our finance team and we were talking about changes and we jumped the gun. We just focused on here are the changes that are coming and they were like, why? This is stupid. We don't want to do this. And they were resistant. And the number one reason is we did a crappy job of explaining why we're going to do the change. I'll give you one simple example. When, when I took over responsibility for the hospitals, the, uh, my predecessor said, Omar, you can't send phishing emails to physicians. You don't understand how that works. On the insurance side, everyone's at their desk. You can do it. It's no big deal. But, you know, babies are going to die if you do this in the hospital. So you can't do it. And I said, OK, well, let me let me see. Let me engage and let me see if this is going to work. And so I went to the chairs of all of the departments and they have a regular meeting and I spent 30 minutes with them. And the first 28 minutes, I just explained to them what happens when people click on phishing emails. Mm -hmm. And then they got to the point where they're like, Omar, this is horrible. What are you doing to make sure that this doesn't happen at AHF? And at that point, I was like, oh, that's my last slide. We're going to be rolling out a phishing program. And that's it. Like, I don't talk to them about dates. I don't talk about specifics, like nothing. Mm -hmm. Because if you talk to them about dates and specifics and how you're going to do it, They'll give you a hundred reasons your plan is wrong. Well, you didn't talk to this person. You didn't communicate here. Did you do this? Did you do that? No matter what your plan is, it's always going to be wrong. However, if you just focus on here's why this is important, then you're no longer imposing security on the business. The business is pulling you in and mm -hmm. saying, I desperately want you to do this. And you know, when it comes to zero trust, if ransomware wasn't a real risk in the, in the hospital environment, I probably would not be even thinking about deploying zero trust in the in the hospital environment. But given that's a real risk, given that's something that our business would not want, it would directly impact our patients and ability to deliver care. 
I think it's really important and the business more importantly thinks it's important, which is why, uh, which is why we're deploying zero trust. So it's really, really important that we take the lead from the business. If the business thinks that security and risk reduction isn't important, then it's not important. If they think it's important, we should do it. We shouldn't be convincing them to uh, convincing them to do it. It's like, you know, when I have to go to my kid and if my kid doesn't want the ice cream, I'm not going to spend any time convincing them that they should have it. Like I want the business to see that there's real value in there. And if I can't convince them there's value, then I just shouldn't do it. Well, I, I think the better example with the kid has got to be the vitamin or the medicine. Yes. Right. Cause true. they all want ice cream. So that's not hard, but no, I, I love the point you made and Tamara and Brian, I'd like you to, to, to comment on that. The point of, uh, making the case that that this is something you don't want to happen and we're not going to talk about how we're going to make sure it doesn't happen but you can agree that you don't want this bad thing to happen oh yes this is terrible we would never want this to happen okay i'll make sure it doesn't right and, and i'm not going to talk i'm not going to bring you into the kitchen too much to talk about the details but Tamara, let's start with you and then go to brian i mean yeah this could be the way earlier part of the conversation when brian was talking about the the negative connotation of the term zero trust as you're speaking to people mm -hmm. outside of security, maybe that's where the shift comes in. Look, I'm, I'm just going to do ransomware prevention or, you know, risk reduction for us. And you could just shape it in different ways, but in the background, you're doing and implementing zero trust uh, type of policies and zero trust type of implementations. I think that's probably a good way we could spin this stuff because as Omar just said, though, ransomware is real. It's a real threat. It's, uh, one of the things we talked about is what's kind of looking at the crystal ball of the future. Um, something that I think that's emerging that we're going to all have to deal with is a three-stage ransomware attack. And this is probably going to start coming where the first stage is the typical, somebody clicks a link, they've encrypted your network. Now you, you, operations are down. You have to pay the ransom, you know, or, you know to try and get your data back, et cetera. Um, that's just the stage one in the future. What I think it's going to evolve to is more of a step two is, okay, now pay us additional money so that we don't take this data that we stole from you. Because during this time, we exfiltrated your data, not just encrypted, and now pay me another ransom to make sure I don't give that data away um, so that you have more egg on your face and lose more of your reputational value, um, as well as any potential fines from damages. And the third stage is going to be the stuff that people have been somewhat ignoring is the denial of service of your medical systems, your medical devices. Now it's not just because I can move laterally freely as an attacker and I can latch onto the, they all have some kind of a form of a Linux box or windows. They're all computers that they can attack and, and launch attacks from and do things to um, the third stage of this attack is going to be okay. Pay me another ransom. If you want to start using your medical devices again. So it's not just the data being encrypted. These are all things that are probably coming in the future that we all have to start paying attention to that we can say, here's why I want to do this project of zero trust or risk mitigation or ransomware reduction or however you want to call it to your business. There's a lot of good whys there we could talk about as how this will affect our business if any of these three stages hit us, both reputationally and, and financially and just pure patient care, all right, affecting the patients. Brian, when Omar was was talking, it made me think how how much the CISO role has to be in some ways like a sales role. You have to sell. You have to sell your vision. Yeah. You have to sell the vision of the world you're seeing. But yet, I don't imagine there are too many folks that go into IT security 
who are natural salespeople, right? I mean, that's really not the career you go into. So, but you have to become that person if you're going to get to that level, that executive level. So talk to me about that a little bit. Yes. Yeah, so point. I say CISO's role is 50% technical, 50% uh, marketing, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I think we, we have to, and I, what, I, what I've learned over time exactly that is define the why. What is the why? Why are we doing it? And, and if we don't, what is my impact? And that's kind of really the way I've been trying to translate that, turning that into that, making sure that's part of that. So it's really clear because we we kind of sit there and we, you know, we get very in-depth into what we need to do, but it doesn't translate well to why we're doing it. And so I think that's that piece. Why is it why you're you're changing how I want to operate? You're changing how I do things, right? Like you were saying, just sometimes moving where you click on something has impact. People don't totally. like it, right? So, totally. so now you really add even further disruption to that process, right? So 2FA, why do I need to do this? You know, can I just turn this off? <laughs> I mean, it's like, let me explain to you where that impact. What is the time, like, how, you know, like password management on your side? How do you do it? That's one thing we have to enforce. So we have to enforce 2FA. So those are the things that bring forward the, you know, the the why. And I, I agree. It's, it's, I've learned it's actually starting to, to translate to being the, like, I really am the champion of, like, as a CISO, you're really the champion of driving that strategy from a marketing perspective and selling, selling the idea of security. Everybody wants it. People all inherently want to have security, right? They want to do it, but they don't want to go through the problems of doing it, right? I like the TSA, hey, well, when 9-11 hit, we knew we had to increase security at TSA, but who loves going through security at TSA? (laughs) No one, right? So they kind of see the same thing. Well, we have to do that. We have to say, there's the reasons why if we don't. Um, so I think that's like that. That is the role of the CISO is really getting that message across. Yep, it's uh, definitely a lot going on there. Tamar, uh, you anything you want to add there? No, I mean uh, one of the other things that you just commented on though was um, the doing nothing part of it. I think also needs to be very clearly defined and outlined. Say, hey, we we're trying to make this decision but doing nothing is also a decision and here's the impact of doing nothing right. and here's what that means for us to do nothing if you want to make that choice too so that's another important thing that a lot of folks forget about is is we're we're battling the doing nothing as well like um for for various reasons is uh, so outlining and defining doing nothing should be part of that why conversation and why that that's impactful. And as a business, if you want to still do nothing or not make this decision, <laughs> that's fine. If you want to make that decision as a business, but here's why, or here's how that impacts us um, in that sense. Right. And that, that do nothing decision on the part of the business has to be documented by the CISO, right? <laughs> hey, they wanted to do nothing. Sign here. You agreed. You didn't want to do anything. I told you to. Um, Omar, uh, let's give you an opportunity to ask one or both of your co-panelists a question. Absolutely. So uh, my question is, uh, is there a particular zero trust control that uh, you implemented or that you've seen someone implement that uh, you found to be particularly effective in reducing risk and uh, not particularly intensive in terms of implementing? Great question. Uh, Brian? Doing a implementation of something there now. So far, the implementation 
from a uh, POV perspective has been fairly seamless. So the, the, the hope is that it'll go on. It's more on the um, identity threat risk, right? So protection of that going through and saying, you know, kind of enforcing 2FA for risky behavior, right? So I could go back and say, is that? So, and it's less intrusive on the user itself because it's not going to happen all the time, but when you're doing something outside the norm, I'm going to be prompted to do some of that. So that's something that we're in the process of implementing. I think that's, you know, um, an easier solution and it'll be an effective control. So multi-factor authentication? It's more, well, multi-factor we have that in place from an external perspective, but what do we do in internal, right? So you don't, we don't want to also everything you do internally be there, but it goes back in determining behavior of the user and what is the time when they're doing something that's beyond their normal behavior. And then when should I say, let me just verify this is actually a user because we also know what I think it's what 80% of threats use, you know, either privilege or have user roles that are doing that and, you know, spreading ransomware. So that's a piece too. So if I could then enforce a 2FA approach that says, is it still you? Are you the person who's still wanting to do this? So we could, you know, put that in place. So that's something that we're actively implementing right now. Uh, Tamar, any thoughts there? Yeah. So the, one of the things that I say that I personally have seen and actually helped implement is uh, a, a, a global macro view of a policy engine. Uh, so this is one of the NIST definitions, the PDP, the policy decision point, having something that can tie together all these different systems and tools that you're trying to implement or currently have deployed. Um, it's a low risk way to reduce the most amount of risk as well, because now uh, I'll give the ransomware as a perfect example. Uh, I can tie together these decisions of trust from all these different systems and tools to say, well, if my, whatever you're using for EDR to detect the ransomware, detects something, I need to en enact some level of automation uh, through some orchestration to say, to prevent the, the, that from spreading and moving laterally. So that would be, okay, that solution may try and employ some host-based control, for example, but host-based controls are oftentimes mitigated and disabled by ransomware. So the, the way you can greatly impact your risk uh, or excuse me, reduce your risk of this ransomware spreading laterally is to have that orchestration in place to say, hey, if this detects ransomware, now automatically quarantine this thing at a network level that can't get mitigated by that host-based control. So turning on that level of control, uh, some automation by orchestrating between these different systems and tools by having this macro view and tying them together is a great way to reduce your risk by a huge amount without really impacting the, or disrupting the business very much. Excellent, excellent piece of advice. Um, Tamara, a question for one or both of your co-panelists. Yeah, so this has been tough because I've been listening to both of you and, and seeing the two of you on very different uh, stages of your journey, for example. So uh, Omar, I would, I would like to know, is this, this heat map and this business discussion conversation that you're having, is this something that you're willing to share with us? Uh, and, and I know that Brian and the others on the line would make a lot of use out of this. If so, is this something that we can maybe get to Anthony where you could share some level of what you're doing to be able to use this uh, you know, for the rest of us to be distributed? Yeah, we, we could probably uh, share a, a de-identified version of it. Yeah, that, that would be great because I think the conversations that I'm having across all these hundreds of, of places 
I think it, this would help if I can help them have a better business discussion. I think it'd make it a lot smoother and easier to help these guys and gals out when, you know, to be better salespeople as CISOs. Yes. Yeah. Great question. That's All right. Fun. That's, that's been incredible. I want to give everybody an opportunity. We're almost out of time. I want to give everybody an opportunity for a final piece of advice. Uh, and I think when you do this, think of someone, a CISO at a health system, a large health system, um, is is maybe thought about it? Is maybe even tried it? Let's take uh, some of Tamara's, Tamara's examples of someone who maybe hasn't been successful first time through. Maybe they jumped the gun, went to step five. Maybe they need to back up. But uh, your best piece of advice for someone who has maybe tried and, and had a little trouble going down this road, and maybe it's pushback from from the business side. I think there's been great advice so far. But any final piece of advice, uh, Brian? Let's start with you. So I'd like to say I think I think good things are coming. Um, projects are still emerging and I think they'll, and as more adoption starts taking place, I'll see, I think we'll see an increase in maturity across. So I think that's a piece too, is, you know, I know like uh, Tamar mentioned, people kind of start that, you know, five, but I think that's what happens is those are where the sales piece come in, right? Because somebody goes to a conference and says, Hey, we have to have X tool in place. We need to do this. We need to have this in place. And they're sold on a tool, not on a process. And so that happens. So I think, you know, but that's the thing. If you end up adopting a tool and it's not, it doesn't fit, understand where those gaps are, work with that vendor to try to get the capabilities built in or decide if that's, you know, it's not the right move to then say move off that. But I think that's the, that's the thing. I think that's what I'm saying. I think products will continue to emerge. And I think as adoption increases, they'll, um, you know, you know, we'll, we'll be better off as an industry. Thank you, Brian. Omar? I'd say um, uh, focus on building that relationship with the business, focus on building that uh, relationship with, uh, with technology. And I feel like, um, you know, that's something that even uh, I need to keep working on and, and, and be better at that. And, uh, be willing to be vulnerable, right? Sometimes we feel like if we go to the technology teams in the business and say, we have all the answers that that's what they're looking for. And that confidence is going to help move decisions faster. But the reality is we may be confident and out of five times, we may get things right two or three, or we're super lucky four times, but we're bound to make mistakes. We're bound to not foresee things and cause disruption inadvertently. So Having that sort of honest conversation with a little bit of a dose of humility, I think, is uh, is a really good idea. Great point. Tamar, we'll give you the last word. Sure. Yeah. The last thing I want to say is, you know, zero trust is definitely not going to be a single vendor approach. Um, so if any single vendor is telling you, hey, buy me and you get zero trust, that should probably raise some red flags. It has to be a multi-vendored approach. When you go through those steps one through four, you're going to realize that it's going to take several vendors and several pieces of enforcement to cross all these different boundaries uh, to make this actually work. And then having something that can tie them all together is going to be really crucial and impactful for you as well. Having a single policy engine at the top, something that, that you can define zero trust at a macro level is going to really help make things a lot easier for you in your journey. Excellent. Well, that's about all we had time for today. Incredible discussion. There's so many great points regarding continuing education. You could use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording is of this event is ready. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and you can go to our site to register for upcoming webinars. With that, 
I want to thank our panel, tremendous panel today, Brian K Kayer, Omar Kawaja, and Temer Baker. And I want to thank our sponsors, CyberMDX, the Force Scout Company, and you, our attendees, for coming. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thanks,